0: From the Wilkes Center for Climate Science and Policy at the University of Utah, I'm Ross Chambliss, and we're talking climate. One of the many challenges facing the world in the coming decades to reach carbon neutrality in order for climate change to stabilize is the challenge of both capturing and sequestering carbon dioxide that is emitted from power plants and putting it underground. This is, of course, what is called carbon capture utilization and storage. And accomplishing this on a large scale will be necessary all across the world to meet carbon emissions reduction goals laid out by the Paris Climate Agreement. It turns out that Utah has some high potential to become a reservoir for captured CO2. A number of state and federal agencies and research institutions, like the University of Utah, have been exploring this possibility for a few decades already. And one person involved with this work is Liz Mann, she is a Wilkes Center postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Geology and Geophysics and I recently had the chance to sit down and talk with her about her work. Lizmon, uh welcome. Welcome to the the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Um well, um before before we kind of just talk about your current research, uh could you just fill us in a little bit about uh your your current your well, your background as far as um you know, where where you have been sort of in your, your journey <laughs> as a scholar and researcher before you have arrived here in Utah?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm a geologist, specifically a sedimentary geologist, um, and I'm interested in ancient environments. Um, so I kind of initially became interested in that through um, an interest in environmental science. Um, actually, originally wanted to be a park ranger <laughs> um, when I was a kid because I like camping. <laughs> um, but ended up going down the, the geology route um, in my undergraduate degree. I studied a Bachelor of Science and took a geology class and loved it. Um, so I kind of consider these days that I research ancient environments rather than modern environments. Hmm. Um, so after I finished my undergraduate degree, I went and worked in industry. Uh, so I worked for Chevron on the CO2 Gorgon project in Australia. Uh, and then after that, I, uh, went and did a PhD, something I'd always wanted to do at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Uh, so I was looking at, um, ancient coastal plains and shorelines in the Gippsland basin in Victoria. Hmm.
0: Okay, what is it about geology that you came to really love or appreciate? Uh, you know where did that interest come from?
1: Um, you know <laughs> I'm not sure it's it's kind of like modern environmental science, but uh, for me, it's just a bit more interesting. <laughs> um it's a little bit more mysterious. um you know there's life forms that don't exist anymore that are preserved in those sedimentary rocks um i think I think it's really interesting to see the way. Uh, ancient environments are preserved, so you can look at, um, you know, sandstone and mudstone, and work out that that was a river, a hundred million years ago, um, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of a puzzle, problem-solving sort of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> well, and okay, so. Now, I'm just kind of shifting to your current uh, research focus here, here at the University of Utah uh, within the Department of Geology and Geophysics. Uh, you're looking at uh, the potential for uh, CO2 storage, right, uh, in, in some of the, um, in, in, in roughly this area, I guess, in the Colorado Plateau. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, yeah, that sure.
1: Work? So this project um, is looking at the Glen Canyon Group. Um, so that's a geologic group which is uh, approximately, I think, 210 to 170 million years old. Um, So from the Mesozoic. Hmm. Uh, And it is composed of really beautiful sandstones. So I think a lot of people have probably seen uh, lovely big sandstones in Utah um, in a lot of the national parks and things. Um, And so that particular geologic group um, is what we call an aeolian sand, so a desert deposit. So during the late Jurassic, Jurassic time, uh, Utah and a lot of the other states around here were a massive desert dune field, um, what we call an erg mm. um, in <laughs> geologic terms. So they think it was probably one of the largest ergs, um, definitely one of the largest that we have preserved in the rock record, probably one of the largest on Earth. Um, mm. So huge, huge sand sea. <laughs> mm. um, and the kind of... Um, The reason that's important for CO2 is sandstones make really great reservoirs. So they have um, lots of little spaces between the sand grains, the porosity and permeability, which are really good for storing fluids. Um, So I'm looking at the Glen Canyon group um, from, you know, a a depositional environment perspective and how it can be used to store CO2 in the future.
0: Hmm. Interesting. so I you know I was uh I was kind of looking at you know your initial proposal I guess for for this project um and I it was interesting to read that you know that I I guess that it seems to be you know as far as a lot of the global climate change uh emissions or uh, greenhouse gas reduction goals uh that uh carbon ca- capture utilization and storage uh seems like it's going to be essential for for meeting those goals mm-hmm. um and and it seems like there's it, it, there seems to be abundant uh, co2 storage resources globally mm-hmm. that are identified but sort of the uh the actual w- ability to um, how those are going how it's going to be um, stored and sealed probably requires or, or is in need of more research is that kind yeah, of the, yeah yeah the...
1: basically yep um mm-hmm. so we've kind of identified that there's a lot of really great sandstones around the world, um, and not just sandstone. In fact, you can store CO2 in other lithologies, but, um, but what needs to be done is like a really good geologic analysis. Um, so you need to look at things like how will that CO2 move through the sandstone? Um, is there any faults that might cause leakage? Uh, is there a rock unit above it that will seal it? Um, and you know, fluids <clears throat> fluids and gases and things are constantly moving through our rocks. Um, they're not static. So, um, you know, over the time span of hundreds to thousands of years, we have to do forward modeling of what will, um, what kind of behavior will that CO2 plume in the earth um, do, kind of do. So mm. yeah, there's a lot, lots of geologic work that needs to be done. <laughs> Um, before we can kind of successfully store lots of co2
0: right well and I understand isn't it the, the EPA uh, the federal EPA sort of is requiring um, essentially these potential reservoirs um, to be tested and, and and just basically thoroughly inspected before any sort of large-scale um, efforts happen yeah,
1: yeah that's correct yep and and in fact co2 storage um, so the the Paris agreement was to limit our our um, average global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, by 2100. Um, but in order to do that, we need to get to net zero by 2050. And in order to do that, um, we need to be storing CO2. So it's actually an integral part of that, um, kind of forward plan of the the Paris agreement. Um, so yeah, it's an essential aspect. Um, I, as far as I'm aware, I don't think we can meet those targets without it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, so with with this particular project, I mean, are, are who are kind of the partners you might be working with? Uh, I, I'm guessing, like, are there any state agencies or federal agencies or other uh, university partners uh, focused on this project?
1: Yeah, so um, there's actually multiple kind of CO2 investigative projects underway in uh, Utah right now. Um, the State Geologic Survey, um, the EGI in uh, at the University of Utah, uh, and then industry as well. So there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of focus um, in Utah, and also, to be honest, globally. Um, yeah, it's understandably receiving a lot of focus because it's just so important. Yeah. Yep.
0: When we, you say industry, I'm, I'm thinking of. I, I'm, I'm guessing we're talking about industries that. Uh, Release uh, a lot of carbon dioxide in 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 the in their processes. I mean, are we talking power plants potentially? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. Yep. So um, there's been uh, some work done on trying to work out how to capture that CO2 that, for example, coal plants um, are releasing to try and capture that and then store it in the ground. Uh, Similarly, so for example, the um, the project I worked on in Australia. Uh, CO2 was a component of the natural gas. So rather than just releasing it into the air, we can try and store it in the ground. So um, CO2 storage has actually been um, been undertaken for quite a while, um, decades at this point. So in the past, industry have used it in what they call EOR, Enhanced Oil Recovery. So they inject CO2 into their hydrocarbon reservoir and it kind of flushes out the oil. So there is some pre-existing experience hmm. um, with industry companies with doing that. Um, but we're kind of shifting the focus now to instead of, you know, <laughs> trying to maximize our hydrocarbon input, we're trying to store that CO2.
0: Hmm. Well, yeah. And, and to clarify, I mean, your work specifically is looking at the sort of long-term storage uh, potential and not necessarily the capturing of the CO2. Is correct. that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. Um, I think the, <laughs> the capturing is actually quite a tricky part. And I'm um hats off to the people researching that because i <laughs> i think that's quite complex um and i'm kind of relieved i'm not <laughs> researching that bit
0: <laughs> right but given but given that those folks uh trying to figure that out uh are successful in some way yes. um then it would it would come to uh it would be really important uh kind of the results of the what you're looking at as far as how we actually uh, can take that CO two to keep it underground for for a long time.
1: Yes, right? yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and so what what are you learning about CO two uh, carbon dioxide? It's sort of like uh, once it is sort of deposited. Uh, underground in, in certain areas, um, you know, are there chemical changes that occur? Uh, what what sort of, what happens to it down there?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, so it can be a little bit complicated. There's a bit of a geochemistry involved. Um, so we have to take into account things like um, the minerals that are in the rock that you're injecting the CO2 into. Um, so CO2 can make uh, water, it makes water acidic, so it will dissolve in the water. Um, so once your groundwater becomes a bit acidic, it can just start dissolving minerals like uh, calcite or, um, other minerals that are particularly susceptible. Um, and that can have actually an upside. Um, so by dissolving minerals, you increase your porosity and permeability, which is your storage capacity. Mm. Um, but you also then have to consider things like pressure and temperature and will those minerals reprecipitate elsewhere and, Hmm. Um, things like that so yeah yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a bit of chemistry involved
0: but. yeah well and i'm sure those are a lot of the the things that you're you're looking at i'm, I, I'm with this kind of research um you know I, I i guess the potential of it to move around uh does it does it shift um underground at times uh could it be uh h- triggering earthquakes could it be impacting groundwater uh does it could it, is there a potential for it to leak those kind of things
1: yeah yeah so risk mitigation is a big aspect of this um so we can do sort of forward modeling using computer software um where you sort of input all of your data information about the rocks about the geology uh, and then um you can predict the behavior of the flume the plume um in the subsurface so um we can kind of in, in- incorporate that aspect into our research so we know if there's going to be any big issues Um, for instance we know that the plume may migrate you know yeah toward groundwater or if there's a fault we know you know we won't put the the co2 where there's a fault because it'll leak and that sort of thing so yeah yeah
0: yeah well and and with your kind of research like what, what sort of tools do you are you using? I mean, do you use a lot of computer modeling? Um, are you actually out in the field doing sort of test injections and seeing what happens? So, so what, what are the main tools that you that you use?
1: Sure. Um, so one of the really nice things about the Glen Canyon group um, is that it is both in uh, outcrops, so we can go and walk around it, but it's also in the subsurface. Um, so it's really useful where we can go and actually look at the rocks. We can take samples um, we can make observations and record data and then we can apply that information into where it occurs in the subsurface where we might potentially inject the CO2. Um, in addition, there's also a lot of subsurface data. So um, with industry interest um, in the geology in Utah, there's well logs and there's a little bit of seismic data um, and there's core, um, which is, you know, where they've drilled the rocks uh, in a well. So we can kind of take a combination of our our outcrop data, our subsurface core wireline data, um, and put that together and build a really robust geologic model. So it kind of reduces the uncertainties um, when we can put together multiple types of data.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm curious, um, it, just looking at the, the field generally of uh, carbon capture of CO2 and, and sequestration, because I know this area of research has you know, existed for some time, mm. at least as far as I know, several decades. Yep. But um, what's your sense of how it's matured or a- a- advanced as far as um, general understanding of the, its potential uses? Um, generally, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's been people are c- continually studying it and, and learning more, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and it is quite a complex. Um, sort of science or process, you know, um, it has many many variables. So you could do a study on a particular place in the world, uh, and that works great, and it's awesome. But you move to a different geologic locality, and it's different. You know, the rocks are different, um, the pressures different, the groundwater is different. So uh, it is quite a complex thing to research. Um, so I think we have it is a proven um, kind of process, uh, you know, industry have been using it for a while for EOR. Um, but there is still quite a bit more to do because of all those variables that we're kind of trying to put together. Mm. Um, so I think as a kind of a whole, it's actually coming along quite well. Like I think we're learning a lot every time we do a test uh, project, um, another organization, you know, has a go, we learn. Um, so having more interest on it, we're learning more, um, and getting better and better.
0: Mm. And what so coming from you you know you you were doing a lot of research in, in Australia and now coming here so what is your sense of maybe similarities or differences in the geology
1: <laughs> of sort of
0: uh, of Australia versus here in Utah
1: Yeah I mean well Utah's known for its beautiful rocks <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, Yeah um so where I was based in Melbourne um the rocks I was looking at were buried under the seafloor so Um, My primary data was seismic data, 3D seismic, um, that images the subsurface. So in that instance, I couldn't really go look at the rocks. (laughs) Um, And I was also looking at, you know, coastal plains and coals and things. So um, here I'm looking at, desert systems, aeolian systems, beautiful sandstones that are in outcrop, mm. um, which are really lovely. I'm really excited to do a bit of fieldwork when it stops snowing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and something I wanted to mention too, that I that I also find fascinating, and you, you mentioned something about this, uh, about your interest in um, uh, ancient, ancient uh, landscapes or, or just the understanding sort of or the the early uh, living organisms, uh, what life was like on this planet mm. many millions of years ago, and um, I, I was just thinking about you know the what we're sort of talking about because I understand that the the areas the geologic layers that we're talking about as far as where this uh, CO2 would be injected into, mm. really, uh, and, and maybe it's a little ironic, at least mm. it is to me, is that those are, those are the same time periods if you think about the geologic layers in that way as far as time. I'm guessing like the Jurassic or Triassic periods, mm-hmm. right? When we had various, many different kinds of creatures that don't exist on this planet now. Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of that, um, you know, w- is where, you know, car- this carbon originated from. A lot of this coal <laughs> originated from that was at that time plant matter. Uh, and, and and we've kind of, we you know, we've har- harvested it for energy and emitted it, and now we're trying to put it back into that time <laughs> period. Is that, is that kind of an oversimplification, or is that is that something that, is that
1: something, do you see that? Yeah, yeah, you can definitely, yep, I, I'd agree with that. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we have um, Mesozoic coals and source rocks and things, yep. <laughs> there, yeah. there is an irony there. <laughs> um, and I also think it's quite a nice synergy that the, you know, the Mesozoic was a greenhouse period, So CO2 levels were higher during the Mesozoic and now we're looking at putting CO2 kind of back into those rocks. So, um, you know, for example, the Glen Canyon group um, is an example of a massive desert system that formed during a greenhouse period when CO2 levels were really high. So the earth was really hot. Mm. So it's a a nice kind of analogy of um, earth history from past to future. Um, but then also using that rocks because they make excellent reservoirs. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: fascinating. Well, it is a fascinating sort of cycle uh, that we're participating in, in if, if you think about it that way, as far as you know, uh, in, engaging with the history of our planet.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think um, the geologic history of Earth is just fascinating. Um, I think it's really interesting. A lot of people are really... Um, kind of interested in. I wish we did a little bit better with our science communication and <laughs> education of geology um, when kids are younger. But <laughs> right. um, it's it's such a fascinating thing, and and the concept of time is quite interesting too. You know, we tend to think on a much different time scale
0: mm.
1: um, as geologists. Um, you know, in millions of years rather than hundreds. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, uh, I, yeah, I, I agree with that uh, we could do better as far as uh, our education with children and, and especially talking about geology. Um, mm. I, I remember one thing that really fascinated me was uh, there is a museum down in Price, Utah, where um, they have collected a lot of dinosaur footprints um, that were actually collected, gathered by coal miners there because when they were working in the coal seams, they would routinely uh, find these dinosaur footprints that were actually falling out of the ceiling. (laughs) And they were quite hazardous. Sometimes they'd have to like (laughs) uh, bolster them so they wouldn't fall. But um, just that sense of, you know, they were working in a very different period and and there was evidence of it all around, uh, even above them. Yeah, that's Um, right. So yeah, I just find that really interesting as far as when you start digging into the ground and what you see. And then um, obviously now it's, It's the focus of very important research, such as what you're doing.
1: Yeah, yeah. The preservation of Earth's history is really fascinating. Um, Yeah, the way that we can preserve beaches or swamps or a footprint, you know, it's a moment in time. It's like a little snapshot um, for that little moment by a, you know, a life form that doesn't exist anymore. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, just a few more questions. Um, I'm (laughs) guessing just like as far as, Long term, um, in the next few years, sort of, where where do you hope that your research will take you? Um, do you have any short term goals or long term goals that uh, you'd like to see happen with this?
1: Oh, um, so <laughs> I'm hoping to, you know, kind of do my small part in in contributing to um, kind of solving these these global warming issues. You know, um, I think it's a pretty important. Uh, aspect it's affecting our world right now um so personally i'm happy to sort of help where i can with mm. that aspect um and so hopefully over the next two years uh, i you know develop and produce some nice research that helps with that yeah. <laughs> uh, and then after that who knows
0: <laughs> well yeah if, i guess uh, we'll, we'll wait and see Maybe yeah. we'll, we'll have to invite you back in a in next year and I'll see see, see yep. where, we've, where we've gone um well great and then i guess just uh since you've um, since you've landed here in Utah and you've had maybe a little time to explore, uh, I'm just wondering what you what you enjoy doing uh, in your free time when you're not hard at work doing yes. research.
1: <laughs> My free time. Um, <laughs> good question. <If> it exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess it's currently winter. So it's a bit snowy, but um, I usually like to get out and do some, you know, bushwalking, camping. Um, I'm hoping to go and try a little skiing. I haven't quite got there yet. I haven't bought a car. I've got to work out how to drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> um, so once I do that, yes. Um, but yeah, generally getting outside, um, when the weather, weather's kind of yucky it's nice to stay in and I like to do a bit of art a bit of drawing and things so yeah great
0: well wonderful <laughs> well Liz Mon, uh, thank you so much for talking with us
1: thanks for having me <laughs>